Hey, welcome to uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm Paul Gillette, as always, and I've got uh, Chris Palomares and Mr. James Heidiho Lincoln. Okay, and on the uh, line with us today is Neil Stanton. Neil is the guy behind the SCAB, uh, you know, which is his wireless uh, control system. Uh, you can go to S dash cab.com and see the uh, get more information on it uh, he's got a starter system and so forth but we're going to cover a lot of these topics in our conversation with uh, neil today so neil thank you very much for taking the time okay well thank you paul okay so the thing that intrigues me is the the battery power being able to get rid of uh the track for power and eventually communication. So I know you've got a couple different ways you approach that and you offer battery packs. Just tell us what are the basics of the battery pack? How do you choose which one or which configuration to use? You know, just consider me a sponge wanting to soak up knowledge. So what is the whole uh, science or approach to uh, your battery packs? Well, there are really two different approaches that we can take to batteries. As you know, for a uh, typical loco, we need 12 volts. And so we can take batteries and connect them in series and get uh, something close to 12 volts or something more than 12 volts. So when we connect batteries in series, we, uh, we're adding the voltages together, and the manufacturers label those battery packs 1S, 2S, 3S, meaning 1, 2, or 3 batteries connected in series. And the assumption these days is that the battery chemistry is going to be uh, lithium polymer, which is a little bit safer than lithium iron, but same family. And the nominal voltage of a uh, lithium polymer battery is 3.7 volts. So if we put 3 in series, we get 3 times 3.7, 11.1 volts, or if we do 4 of them, we get 14.4. Okay. And uh, that's uh, <clears throat> that's a very nice way to get power uh, if uh, if we've got a good heavy loco that needs um, high, high amperage. In other words, it's got a large motor um, requiring a lot of uh, amps to run. The series-connected battery pack is probably the way to go. And it's been widely used in garden railways and in uh, uh, larger scale, G-scale, locos, uh, indoor and outdoor. It's been around for a long time. The only thing that's upgraded is, of course, going to the uh, lithium polymer because previously they were um, metal hydride or other technologies, which are not, they don't store the same amount of energy uh, in, in the same amount of volume. So they're obviously, as we go to smaller scales, which is what I'm primarily interested in. The uh, lithium polymer battery becomes the uh, overwhelming choice. So that's battery packs. And I'll, I'll come back to battery packs. There's a, a serious issue with battery packs. But let me go to what I promote 
and what I use and what I offer through the website, which is what I call a battery power supply, not using much imagination, I abbreviate that to BPS, meaning battery <laughs> power supply. So okay. <laughs> I, I tried creativity, but various people out there advised me to keep it simple. So there we have it, BPS. Now, what's different about BPS and quite different from a power pack is that the BPS only uses a, a cell, one lithium polymer cell, but we can connect them in parallel. And again, you know, this very creative business we're in, two in parallel is a 2P and three in parallel is a 3P. So uh, that's pretty easy to figure out. However, when we connect them in parallel, the capacities add, of course, and the uh, amperage we can get out of them adds, but the voltage is always going to be 3.7 volts. We need 12 volts for our model locomotives, and we get that through the battery power supply electronically. We basically, um, you could think of it as a transformer for DC, I suppose. The uh, battery power supply has all the electronics in it to manage the battery, uh, control all the safety features of the battery uh, to protect it from various kinds of abuse and to provide the uh, 12 volts output that we need to drive our locos. The advantage of this is that even in an HF scale loco, so long as it's got a reasonable amount of space, we can fit both a battery and the battery power supply in the loco and the battery power supply will charge the loco uh, from any power it can find, either from the track or from a uh, connector, which we can plug into the battery from some sort of external source. The advantage of having power on the rails is that whenever the loco finds some power, or the BPS, I should say, finds some power on the track, it charges the battery. And uh, we also provide a diode bypass um, around the BPS or around the electronics so that the power from the track can also go directly to power the motor so long as the voltage on the track is higher than the voltage that's coming out of the step-up converter, which is in the BPS. So it serves um, either as a primary source of power for a loco or it essentially provides uninterrupted power. In other words, it's the perfect backup for any glitches, um, power interrupts, uh, unwired switches, uh, you name it, that we run into on a typical uh, layout. We can also operate on layouts that are not powered simply by making sure our battery is big enough to store the energy we need to run for some reasonable period of time. So that's it. We've got two approaches. One is the battery power pack. The alternative, which uh, I promote, is the uh, battery power supply. The reason that I'm not a big fan of battery packs, and by that I mean the series-connected battery packs, is that we need to be very careful about how we charge the batteries in a series-connected pack. Once we've got two or more batteries, we've got to make sure that the, the charging process is equalizing the voltages across all the cells, and that requires a more complicated battery charger. If we don't take precautions to equalize the voltage across the cells, then we run the risk that some cell or cells in a series-connected battery pack will be exposed to over-voltage, 
and lithium polymer batteries definitely do not like over voltage conditions. So a more complicated charger pretty much commits us to having the charger external to the loco, which means whenever we want to charge the batteries, we've got to essentially take it out of operation and plug it into an external charger. Some people even go to the extremes of actually taking the battery out of the loco. My opinion is if there's a good charger that's compatible with the battery pack and it's got a voltage equalization or cell equalization as part of its setup, then charging in the loco is is pretty safe. I wouldn't worry too much about that. But if we just apply uh, you know, voltage to a series connected battery power supply and hope that it's going to charge correctly, we're, we're cutting corners and taking some risks. Okay. That's a summary. I think that sort of is the comparison of the two two approaches. Okay. Well, here's a question for you. All right. So in series, it becomes number of batteries times the 3.7 volts for a total power. Total voltage. Yes. In the parallel, so we stay at 3.7 for the voltage. At the battery. Yes. Now, how does that, both of these impact the amperage that we need at the motor or at the decoder, be it three-tenths of an amp, one amp, whatever. How does that play into this so that you know you've got enough power for the locomotive? Okay, well, the, the series-connected battery pack, the, the current flows you know, through all the batteries in series, so whatever is coming out and going to the motor is essentially what's being drawn out of the battery. Mm-hmm. So two amps to the motor means two, hours com- two amps coming out of the, the battery. Now, a good rule of thumb with the essentially the battery power supply is to say that let's pick a nominal voltage, say three volts, which is kind of the low end of the range for a lithium polymer battery. That's that's the voltage going in. Okay. The, the voltage coming out is 12, which means we've multiplied the voltage by four, which means that to get half an amp out, we're going to have to put two amps in. So we can get half an amp out at 12 volts by putting two amps in at three volts. So just use the uh, the multiplier of four as a good rule of thumb there. Okay. Somebody orders a battery power supply from you. Do you give them the option or do you have a utility on your site that says, this is what I'm going to use this to power? Let's just use an example. It's, I've got a, a new Genesis you know, model so-and-so, SD45, whatever, with uh, factory-installed Tsunami. Do you give them guidance on what they might need as far as a battery power supply? Yes. I, there's no uh, there's no order cart uh, when you go to uh, scab.com, and the reason for that is that we really have to have a, uh, a discussion about what, uh, what the requirements of a particular user may be Okay. in order to... Essentially, we even have a look at the space requirements to some extent because uh, there are very in, there's sort of incompatibilities here in in what what we can fit in the space and what is needed to actually uh, lead to successful operation of the loco. So, okay, it's both a, it's both a decision on space, uh, how big the battery is going to be, and whether the BPS is going to, which has a 500 milliamp limit on its output operating limit, that, whether that's going to be enough to uh, to drive the loco. Now, you mentioned an Athern um, um, Genesis, which is sort of their latest top-of-the-line 
we know the motor's not a problem there. We can certainly power that with the BPS. Okay. And that's that's generally the case. I mean, someone's just got to say, well, I've got a uh, an XYZ Loco. Um, it's HO scale. I bought it uh, two years ago. And at that point, I know enough to say, okay, BPS will do it. Now, how big a battery can be fit? If they come to me and say, well, I've got this old Lionel um, <laughs> that I inherited from my grandfather, yeah. I know right away that the BPS is not the right choice. All right. And even some of the, uh, oh, for instance, some of the early lifelike when they were doing the Proto 2000, I know I had been cautioned by one gentleman on the PAs. Apparently they were notorious for it. They had been designed to, you know, pull everything out of the house, but a kitchen sink in HO scale. And as a result, they used a lot of, a lot of amps, like even a couple amps. And in the context of the conversation I was having, it was like, be careful before you just stick a tsunami in there because you may fry the, fry the board because of the power requirements. So if those are the situations, somebody doing an older, uh, less efficient locomotive, they really need to touch base with you to make sure that what is supplied will meet their needs. Absolutely. And, of course, tsunamis max out at uh, one amp anyway. So mm-hmm. there's a one amp limit there if you go to their um, their um Micro uh, tsunami, that's a 750 milliamp limit. Mm-hmm. Their new Eco, which is a nice little decoder, is a one amp decoder. So there's that limit. But, and in most cases, um, we can drive um, tsunamis and um, the typical NCEHO decoders or, or even the D13 series, for example. We can always drive them from a, from a BPS. The 500 milliamp limit is, is fine. Uh, and then, you know, we're, we're just – then all we've got to worry about then is, well, is the motor going to draw a uh, – two amps, which, you know, is really, really hard on the batteries, by the way. We've got to have mm-hmm. a big battery to keep it running, not not to mention the fact that the it'll have to be a series battery pack to get the two amps at 12 volts. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that our CERN, for some reason – uh, last time I looked, they're still using incandescent or filament-type lamps. Yes. And it's amazing, but those little filament lamps typically pull between 50 and 80 milliamps each. Mm-hmm. And a good motor these days uh, runs you know, unloaded. It'll run at about 80 milliamps. So we've got one light taking as much power as a motor. And yes. the first thing we have to worry about Every time I get an Athern, I throw my hands in the air and say, oh, darn, we're going to have to replace them with LEDs. Uh, we can run an LED at 2 milliamps, and it's still very bright at 2 milliamps. So it's a huge energy saving just to replace the uh, the incandescent lights, and almost everyone overlooks that, but it's a big issue. You know, when I first started doing uh, decoders, a guy I was getting tips from, he said, you know, if you rent it, you ought to suggest to your, your customers that, you know, let's let's convert from incandescent to LEDs, you know, be they surface mount, two millimeter, whatever fits the application. He said one is the longevity and two is, his, he's at a minor issue of heat, but the other is the power draw. So, yeah, that is just, someone brings me a, a conversion to do. My standard pricing is, hey, I'm getting rid of the incandescents and we're going with, uh, you know, either 402s or 603 
surface mount LEDs. Yeah, that's a very good point is the amount of power that the uh, the incandescents can draw. Okay, very good. Yeah, there's a lot of talk in the media. Uh, so we've got liquid polymers. Uh, do you have any insight where that's going? I know people, and this is a almost a sidebar, but, you know, the the drive behind Tesla Motors, you know, from what I read, they're always looking to push that envelope on battery technology, both size and capability. Do you see any of that filtering down and helping our, you know, our hobby here in the future? Well, it's got to be slow. Uh, the There's, a you know, an incredible amount of research going on uh, with battery chemistry and um, clever ways to improve the effectiveness of existing technologies. The... Um, the push, of course, is where the big money is, which is, uh, you know, electric vehicles, um, mm-hmm. in fact, all kinds of electric propulsion. And some of those technologies are suitable for a very large scale, and they don't scale down to small. small. So that that's a consideration. And then this, the, the battery manufacturers don't have a lot of motivation to, to worry about building batteries that are going to sell, you know, for seven bucks each. Um, It'd be much nicer for them to be building batteries going to sell for three hundred each. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and it's a huge demand, of course, for batteries at that uh, high capacity uh, uh, industrial scale end of things. So for uh, for us people who are the sort of bottom end of the food chain here, it's going to be a long wait. Uh, but the technology you know, does trickle down eventually. I don't see anything that's going to make much difference. Uh, in the next two, three years, um, look out 10 years, yes, I think we'll see improved um, batteries. And so it's it's going in the right direction, let's put it that way. And in fact, the, the entire electronics industry is going in the right direction if you like putting all this complicated technology into model locos. If you don't like putting all this stuff into model locos, then you probably are not going to be thrilled with uh, all this stuff uh, that yeah, people are trying to sell you and cram into your locos. <laughs> I mean, there's there's two schools out there. Um, and you know, a lot of people find all this electronics is just incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and I used to be a part of that camp. You know, I don't need this. I can DC's worked ever since I was a kid. And what happens is you go buy an inexpensive locomotive that has DCC sound in it. Mine was a $115 Bachman S2, S4, whatever it was, and put it on a friend's layout with DCC. And I was just mesmerized. <laughs> you know, I couldn't wait to get, uh, you know, start experimenting with my own stuff. And boy, I just went over overboard with DCC and sound. <laughs> I was taking all my all my mad money and spending it on that. So, yeah, I was a quick and total convert myself. Yeah, it's get, it's getting over that uh, initial sort of uh, it's different and I'm not sure I trust it and what do I, you know, where am I going to make the mistakes, you know, am I being suckered? It's all that sort of resistance to change kind of psychology that's at work there. Yeah, and I've had a couple friends that just, look, come over, I'll walk or, you know, we'll do one of your locomotives, look what I do. We'll go through the, the whole process. And sometimes this took a couple of days, depending upon schedules. And then I said, okay, on the next one, you're going to do it. I'm going to look over your shoulder, give you the tips, give you the reminders and stuff like that. And I'm 
you know, pretty sure most people are intimidated by the soldering. Yeah, but once you get a, a decent soldering outfit, get the right solder, the right flux, and learn that, you know, a little solder goes a long way. You don't need, <laughs> you know, three ounces of solder to hold a power feed to a board. You know, you're you're okay and you're, nothing is fatal. You can always redo it. So, yeah, it's... It's really good. That's what uh, in, has intrigued me even a couple of years ago when you and I spoke about the battery power and the um, the wireless. That's why I like uh, what Ring Engineering has done with with theirs. The way the industry's got to go is wireless. You know, I get frustrated on my Cox uh, cable system because they're still using infrared instead of, you know, sound to uh, <laughs> make the remote control work. So... Please yeah. bring me technology now, quickly. Right. Now, of course, for me, radio is only a means to an end. I, yes. The fundamental thing is to get us freed up from this dependence on contact between wheels and rails, which is fraught with uh, endless reliability problems. Um, Absolutely. The, uh, Absolutely. The nature of that rolling contact uh, is just not, not sound engineering, but it was the only way we could do things, you know, years back. So... The battery is really, to me, the, the thing that makes all the difference in operation. And um, having found a way to power the loco, then it's obvious, well, what the heck, you know, we'll use radio to do the communication. Yeah. So so radio is kind of the, just the enabling technology. It's not the fundamental reason, uh, in my opinion, for, for, you know, tearing a loco open and doing a lot of soldering, I think, the the main reason to tear a battery open and do a lot of soldering is to get the battery in there. Yeah, the parallel is why I like to cook versus just ordering out. I love getting in there, getting my hands dirty with making a mess, cooking from scratch versus uh, ordering out. Although I'm guilty of doing both, but okay. So, Well, if we just pick up that thought about the reluctance of modelers to make the change and yeah. uh, adopt a new technology, then what's intimidating about putting a battery in a loco is really uh, where am I going to find the space in the loco uh, and how you know how how much time and energy am I going to have to expend to get it in there and to make the decision you know what size battery yeah that's that's difficult for someone who hasn't been there and done it before and I would say you know 80% of all the free consulting I do <laughs> is uh it's free in the sense that people call me up or people send me emails and say, hey, Neil, you know, what do I need? Well, obviously, it's my job to tell them, or at least I see it as my job to tell them what, what I think they might need and what I think might work. So we can sort of do categories here. We can say, you know, steam locos with large tenders are pretty easy. The tender is a great place to put a battery. The full wide body diesel locos, such as the uh, F7s, the uh, E5, 6, 7, 8s, um, yeah, they're relatively easy. And then the yard switches, uh, the Jeeps, uh, the narrow hooded locos, the difficulty level goes up and the battery choices go down. And then finally, we come to the really, really small yard switches, the N, NW2s, the S2s. And there we really can't fit it all in the loco unless we take the motor out. And, of course, that gets us right back to the Stanton Drive, which Northwest Shortline would be very happy to sell anyone who, who was interested. <laughs> okay. 
the Stanton drive was concocted as another enabling technology, as we, we've discussed in a previous. Uh, and this is not a plug, really. Uh, it's just pointing out that in in sort of sizing up a project, the user needs to think about, well, what, what locos do I really want to work with? And where is battery power going to do me the most good? And how much trouble do I want to go to anyway? Yeah. And as one big-time user uh, with a very large layout has told me, he said, well, you know, we find the battery power actually most useful in yard switching because that's where we've got all the connection problems, all the dirty track problems, all the switching problems. Okay. And done, Neil. You know, it's nice that it's easy to do a conversion of a mainline E7 or an E8, but it's not on the mainline runs where we run a 20-minute point-to-point run uh, that we have that much problem. So probably two-thirds of the requests I get, you know, do involve the narrow-hooded locos. Okay. And um, there we have to resort to the what I call the BPS 500 battery, which is you know, roughly 80, 18 millimeters wide. Wow. Okay. So, and that's still 500 milliamps, so it's not like it's a, a, a humongous compromise and, you know, they, it all fits, but it's, it's more difficult. So, Paul, if you really want to get into the, uh, the battery power supply business, um, there's, there's, there's your big hint. The, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful opportunity out there for people who are interested in getting batteries into the, uh, what people typically call the mainline switches, which are the, the GP sevens, the G, you know, the GP thirty-five, uh, that class of logo there, and you know, I've, I I do it from time to time, and it's it's quite doable, but it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. It's okay. wonderful when you get a nice um, E eight or something to work with, where there's um, plenty of room. Now, how much room there is, finally, when how much room there is depends on the manufacturer and um, um, Broadway um, Limited, for example, and the latest uh, Proto 2000, for example, have very clean metal castings in them where they clear off the top and give a relatively flat surface with some clearance mm-hmm. between the top of the casting and the, and the roof. And that's really nice space to work in. Other manufacturers um, just try to cram, you know, cram more metal in there and some of them sit their motors quite high Oh yeah, uh, on the chassis, which really, really makes for a difficult um, conversion. So, you know, I've got to the point now where I can pretty much tell someone, well, the punchline is that think about the manufacturer, think about the space requirements in the loco, and then categorize your locos into whether they're yard switches, such as an NW2, S2 type loco, whether they're mainline switches, such as a Jeep, or whether they're mainline mainline locos such as the E-series, EMDs or whatever, or their steam locos with large tenders. And that, that allows us then immediately to sort of converge on what is going to be a relatively easy or a slightly more difficult installation and, more importantly, what the best choice of components is going to be. Now, I, I looked at your website and it mentions every scale other than O. Does it, is it is not appropriate for full-size O or... Yes, the BPS uh, power supply is limited to about 500 milliamps output at 12 volts. Very small O-scale locos with nice little uh, efficient CAN motors in them can operate quite well at uh, 500 milliamps. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the larger locos, the heavier ones, um, they need an amp or more, and that's beyond the capability of the battery power supply. Mm. So my... My answer there is go buy a battery power pack mm-hmm. 
but be aware of the the inconveniences that come with a battery power pack. Right. With those, you really should be taking it out, putting it on the charger. You shouldn't be. It's more difficult to trickle charge it through the track, right? You've really got to have a dedicated connection one way Mm -hmm. or another. Mm -hmm. And uh, the charger is generally too big to fit in a loco. And so it's an external charger that that has to be plugged into the loco or the loco has to be plugged into it. If we don't use cell balancing, then I would not recommend charging a battery while it's in a loco. Because the the inconvenient fact of locomotive possibly catching on fire and burning your house down. Well, it's more like the battery starts to swell. We start to pop, you know, connect, you know, pop bits of the loco uh, with the pressure from the expanding battery. It's not a good situation. No, no, I would tend to think that. Could, um, the, could the battery and charger be in a uh, following freight car with just a uh, wire connection into the locomotive? Would that work? Yes. Okay. And, in fact, uh, a number of modelers are doing that, especially uh, people who have uh, small um, yard switching locos that, are very difficult to fit mm-hmm. with with a uh, a complete battery and radio control system. They're just too small. So yeah, the idea of a, a utility uh, um, vehicle of some kind carrying the battery is a good idea. A slug or a B unit or you know something like that. Uh, for practicality, is there um, any interest in maybe just like not using batteries and just running like power through the rails, kind of conventional, but utilizing the new radio control? No. In the U.S., there's virtually no interest in that that I've detected. In Australia, it tends to be more common. I don't know much about the rest of the world. The problem is that sound decoders are very popular in the U.S., and they don't behave well when there's um, interruptions and glitches on the power supply. That's due to the continuity of the power source rather than the communication so radio communication doesn't solve the problem of intermittent power supply through the track but the whole thing of the battery i guess to me is you get away from the limitations and or extra work of keeping track work pristine and clean so that there aren't the hesitations the the dropouts and stuff that's if i were to make the investment in this, it would be totally so I could do batteries, not have to worry about either DCC or power going through the rails. Well, the reason I bring it up is because there's segments of the hobby that are interested in signaling. And the way signaling works is by detecting continuity through the rails. So if you have a battery as your power source, you're going to have to wire up your layout anyway with some sort of continuity to detect the train and thus you know, trigger signals. So sometimes you, just all things simplified, it may not, for situations like that, it's, it may just be easier to run power through the rails, bypass batteries altogether, then you don't need to worry about uh, trying to do installations into small locomotives and all that other stuff. But you still benefit from radio control where it's, you know, wiring up a layout for DC is a lot simpler than, um, in some ways, than doing DCC with a bunch of boosters and things like that. So, I, especially I in a modular environment, DC is easy to get onto the rails. 
I agree with your comment, and I encourage people to take the simplest parts of their layout and put some DC onto it, and that philosophy would be consistent with signaling as well. I, the parts of the layout that I don't like wiring are essentially any areas of complicated switches. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's the areas that are the most twitchy, and the feeder wires to the points, and sometimes the frog break, they're the, often the most troublesome to kind of keep intact through different operating uh, sessions and things like that. So uh, I could totally identify like a yard ladder having like some sort of battery backup or like capacitor backup just to smooth out a switcher while it goes through all the complicated track work is ideal. So that's brings us back to my main point about the advantage of batteries, because even if we don't have a battery that can run the loco for an hour, if we have a, a little battery on there, a small battery on there that can run the loco for five or 10 minutes, then we can still have good old fashioned DC on nice convenient sections of straight track, main line and whatever. Uh, we don't have to wire any switches, uh, um, switching ladders, double crossovers, you name it, uh, because the battery will happily carry the loco through that. And the BPS takes care of all of this completely automatically. That's fantastic. Now, the other thing that is interesting was you mentioned that NCE now has a decoder that is capable of working with your SCAB. Correct. Okay, do you see that a growing trend, like you're going to expect that, you know, one NCE decoder becomes a, a wider selection? I can't really answer that question. I I know in the case of people, the manufacturers of sound decoders, it's very unlikely they'll go that direction. NCE has always been a company that's willing to do small production runs to meet special requirements. And this uh, DRJ, which is the direct radio, uh, is you know, one of the examples of them simply doing that. I certainly appreciate it. And, of course, you know, I've been in contact uh, with various manufacturers, you know, throughout this process. So NCE is well aware, and Jim Scores, the owner of NCE, is well aware of what I'm doing. And the same is true of uh, soundtracks and um, even... Uh, ESU through their uh, U.S. office. They know what I'm doing. They're unlikely to integrate radio with their existing products. That's probably the simplest way to say it. Okay, so do you have a handshake receiver that will then adapt the, the traditional decoder to your SCAB system? Yes, there's a receiver, and that's receiving communication directly from the handheld throttle. That receiver could talk to the loco or the decoder in the loco because we're using a standard DCC decoder from um, a normal decoder manufacturer, nothing special about it. But, of course, we've got to find a way to get the radio signal out of the receiver into the decoder. And I've chosen what I call the direct connection, which takes the radio signal directly to the microprocessor on the decoder. It's a little tricky to do the reverse engineering, but and as decoders get smaller and the components get smaller, it's getting a little trickier to actually make the connection as well. But happily, um, 
it's quite practical and doable and produces a very reliable result. And it's an efficient solution because <clears throat> we're not um, trying to pump a signal through the uh, diodes and wasting energy. We're communicating directly at the logic level from the radio receiver to the microprocessor on the decoder. Uh, it also puts us in a good position on <clears throat> large-scale decoders where we'd have to use an awful lot of energy to actually take the radio signal in through the front end, which would be through the uh, the diodes on the uh, the large-scale decoder. Okay. So the direct connection works irrespective of the size of the decoder. Okay. Because I see on uh, one of the web pages it does talk about your SCAB receiver, and there's a, um, a photo there of a Tsunami TSU-750 that's been fitted with uh, your receiver. It looks like a, a clean marriage of the two components. It makes quite a neat package. And, uh, by the way, the uh, we're now doing this with the new uh, Econami um, from Soundtracks, which is an absolute um, marvel in terms of um, fitting lots of capability into a small package. It's an incredible uh, achievement, I think, from Soundtracks. I'm, I don't normally plug anyone, but I... I have to admire the engineering that went into the producing that uh, Econami decoder, and it performs beautifully, by the way. So we've actually um, done the direct radio connect there, and it makes a, a brilliantly small package. I'm, I'm, it's hard not to be impressed. I've, I've done it now for a couple of customers, and in both cases they came back and said, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on everything you just said about the uh – Economy. We had done a couple installs into Kato N-Scale SD70s. Now, sure, we had to do some machining of the frame, and we also machined to incorporate uh, small sugar cubes. But, yes, that Economy made that little N-Scale Kato sound like an HO locomotive, full of authority, presence. So if I were N-Scale, then I'd just put your receiver and stuff in a trailing boxcar, not have the best of all the worlds. N-scale would be new territory for um, for SCAB, but this economy has certainly made it a little easier for HO modelers. So we talked about, you know, the SCAB, which you've had it for a while, and it's just, you know, very straightforward uh, design. Uh, you make a statement that it's designed to be, you know, Operated with one one hand, uh, so you've put attention to the uh, ergonomics of it. I like what you've uh, done with it. Like I say, I'm a big fan of radio control and getting stuff off the rails. Where do you see? Or let me, let's just all right. Let's look at adoption within the marketplace. You know where the resistance is. What you're doing to overcome it. I've heard the comments. You know the other radio control uh, people out there have nice systems, but anytime you deviate from the norm, you know, there's a certain segment of the market that just puts up their hands and goes, no, it's it's new and I don't want to learn it. All kinds of approaches or reactions like that. How do you see the market? Because you do the shows. Uh, do you see people beginning to embrace what you've been doing for the last five years? Well, radio is ubiquitous. It's inevitable. Mm-hmm. The technology is moving at certainly at light speed, I guess, to use a pun there. The trouble is that it's 
too complicated for the average person. I mean, I, I even have trouble with a cell phone. The, the latest cell phone's okay. So most modelers want to run trains, not worry about technology. Mm -hmm. And so my philosophy is, well, go with a migration strategy. Try to leverage off what people have already learned and know and love and hate. Fix the things they hate if you can do it. And just try to make it convenient and try to keep the learning curve so it's not too steep. Now, that's a slow way to make progress because it means each step is only an incremental step. And you could say, well, Neil, that first throttle, you know, has some limitations. It's, it's simple. It's easy to use. It's intuitive. When are you going to upgrade it? Well, one of these days, I'm sure I, I might upgrade it. I, uh, that's a question of, you know, what, what other priorities are there? If I would upgrade it, of course, I'd look at the radio technology. But I'd, I'd try to keep the same interface working with conventional off-the-shelf decoders so I don't make orphans out of all those people and all those decoders out there, and there are millions of them, okay? Absolutely. So I could say, well, you know, let's join the Wi-Fi club. Well, where does that leave us with decoders? Uh, where does that leave us with throttles? Uh, how many people want to go buy an Android cell phone to run a train? How many people like poking around on a glass screen while they're trying to run a loco and uncouple something with the other hand? <laughs> okay. Uh, so the, the resistance to change originates in many cases from the sheer inconvenience of it. In other words, you can get enamored with all these wonderful capabilities but do they really make life easier? That's what it comes down to. Or more fun. I, I, I like the fun part. Okay. Now, that's, that's philosophical, and I'm not sure I answered the question, but I think I mean, you know a bit about how I think now. That, you know, and, of course, that depends for each person. I think for most of us, we prefer, I prefer to have a throttle with a knob, personally. You know, you run it with one hand, and you do whatever you do with the other. You know, and just some of this generation like the coolness, in air quotes, the coolness of doing something with your iPhone. Now, I admit that perhaps it has its benefits in that, say, in a DCC system, instead of having to buy a bunch of $150 throttles so that all your operators can, if you have an extra operator come over that day and you have Wi-Fi and, and all these other things, then you can say, oh, okay, well, I'll use, you know, hey, so-and-so download the app onto your phone so you can run a train. I see the application there as a spare, at least in my opinion. As a spare throttle, it's great. As your go-to... Well, yeah, I'm going to venture an opinion, too, real quick. Uh, as far as, like, engaging new people into the hobby, it's yeah. really easy when you have a cell phone. Just like, hey, yeah, you have an iPhone? Here, just tap into this Wi-Fi network, and you can be running a train with as soon as you download the app. And I'll tell you what, you'll get a lot more people that have never bought a DCC system in their entire life right. running trains instantly. And that's way more compelling than handing them uh, a throttle and saying, oh, do we have enough throttles? That's sort of like, no. <laughs> right. And, and honestly, I prefer using my iPhone over, over a standard knob throttle. I just have muscle memory on where to tap and slide and, you know, I don't. I very rarely look down on my 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 device to kind of do the movements I need it to do. Wait so, a minute. Wait a minute. Muscle memory. 
Yeah, it's a guitar term. You know, if you when you play a fretless instrument, you don't have uh, indicator where your your fingers are supposed to go. They just sort of go there okay. by by nature of practicing. You know, uh, same thing applies to a cell phone. You don't. It's like a fretless guitar. I mean, it doesn't have any buttons on there to kind of like tell you exactly where it is. Um, so it, it's something I'm personally I'm very familiar with. Uh, you know, my, my fingers are used to moving in in okay. in, in that way. So yeah. it, it was a real easy transition for me personally. I'm not saying it's going to be for everybody, but my okay. point just being, hey, you know, it, it, when a new person comes into the hobby that doesn't have any investment in DCC, it's really easy for them just to pick up an iPhone and just say, hey, yeah, I'm here with you guys. Let's run some trains. Okay. And, and or I, a fretless uh, guitar. That's another new one for me. All right. Thank you. But, uh, Paul, um, in regards to muscle memory, uh, it's actually, I mean, most athletes, I mean, if you, you play tennis, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of times, most of, the, most of the time you're playing tennis, you're not thinking about it, you're just doing it. And if you really want to get into the head of your opponent, uh, what you do is if, if he's beating you, he's beating you, it's like between sets, go up to him and say, hey, Bob. That was an awesome shot. I don't know how you pulled that off. I said, you know, tell me how you did that. Did you turn your wrist? You know, did you back it? I, I don't understand how you, I don't know how I could deal with that if you were giving that to me. Playing with his mind. Do you, do, you, do you know why, though? It's because, because now he has to think about it. Now he's thinking about it instead of using muscle memory. And while he's thinking about it, trying to think of how did I do that, you beat him. Okay. Or another good example would be kissing, right? I don't know if I would. Oh, God. Right, anyway, back to the yes cab. I didn't bring that up, okay? <laughs> don't go kissing your yes cab either. The, uh, my mind just went blank, and I had something brilliant to get back on track. See yeah, that example? Muscle memory. That's right. I got, I, got, <laughs> I got in your head. Yes, you got in my head, and I just, oh, golly, sidelined with muscle memory. All right, so you've got a starter package, Neil? I do. You've got I a do. tab that says Getting Started, so people click on there, and Neil has detailed what you're going to get in that package. Uh, what is the price point of that at MSRP? Well, we've got $139 or so for a uh, throttle, and uh, we package it um with the uh, receiver for one loco. Okay. And it could be a, uh, a sound uh, decoder with the receiver, or it could be a non-sound decoder. Non-sound typically works out at about, well, actually, most people buy the battery power supply as well. And I use a rule of thumb here that you can equip a loco with radio control, SCAB style, and the battery power supply. Uh, Non-sound, roughly $100 per loco. And if you want to go to sound, the old rule of thumb w was, well, that's going to be about an extra 90 bucks to go to sound. Uh, okay. The economies just lowered the uh, threshold a little bit there. So the, the things that people remember tend to be, well, if I'm starting out with a starter kit, I don't have anything. I'm probably up for about 250 bucks. Uh, then from there on, and of course that gets me equipped with one loco. And then from there on, if I'm using non-sound, I'm up for about a hundred bucks a loco. And um, for sound, I'm somewhere in the, uh, well, somewhere between 160 and 200, depending 
whether I include a speaker and various other things. Okay. See, I think that's a competitive uh, competitive number. Uh, one of the other DCC uh, starter uh, packages out there that is very successful in the market is, you know, the MSRP is pushing 200 or a little bit above street value, maybe 175. And that's just giving you the control and stuff. You still have to go buy a decoder anywhere from 25 bucks up to like what you said, uh, 100. Plus, you got to do the install and stuff on it. So I don't know. I think your price is uh, pretty competitive. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a conventional um, product developer, merchandiser. I'm really a, a hobbyist to build some stuff and then build a little extra for those that are interested in it. So okay. I operate with with a you know a low margin. I don't advertise, so it's really, you know, basically references, word of mouth, um, occasional articles that people write. And, of course, the website, probably the biggest uh, factor is the website. And uh, a lot of inquiries come in through Northwest Shortline. There's a link from their site. So it's it's somewhat unconventional as far as merchandising and product uh, development is concerned. Have you ever thought about uh, using existing hobby stores as a distribution channel? We tried that early on, and it did not work because the market is too small. The margins are too skinny. Okay. And we don't have the benefit of any um, volume manufacturing. In other words, we can't bring the price of a decoder down by making you know, 10,000 of them. We have to make our decoders in batches of, um, well, we don't even make decoders, but I was really talking about throttles. We can't, you know, we produce throttles maybe at the batches of 100. Uh, the big guys, of course, would would not even look at that as a viable economic option. So the economies of scale are really, really important in the electronics industry. And it changes completely how you have to handle distribution. So direct sales really are about the only option for niche markets. That doesn't. I should. I should say I'm not. I don't discourage um, distributors, installers from getting interested in SCAB, and I'm happy to work with them. But they have to take on part of the cost structure and part of the risk. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Okay. And? Yeah, I'm definitely positive on that. And I have searched around to try to get um, various um, people interested. Um, there's initial interest, and then it kind of fades a bit as they get into the realities of customer support and the amount of education that goes with anything new in this hobby. Right, but it's you know it's uh, the owner of an affair with trains got a hold of one of your Stanton drives, powered trucks, right, and uh, an Athern uh, blue box, just one truck running DC, and every time I demoed it, explained to the people what it was, what it was doing, demonstrated its pulling power, and so forth, and then when I'd pop the shell off. Yeah, immediately their minds are going, wow, look at that. A lot of room to put a decoder and bigger speakers. I mean, it's just the way they were thinking. I said, well, 
Yeah, it's a powered truck, people. We don't have a any type of motor in in the hood. You got plenty of room. So there's, I don't know. I see a lot of opportunity out there for small incremental game changing that uh, gets us where we, yeah. Who knows where it'll be downstream? Uh, one of the big manufacturers has already done that. What two years ago with one of his locomotives? Uh, so. Well, There's Kato, room in the market for yeah, it. Yeah, Cato has their P42, which has got a beautiful little powered truck under it, and truly astonishing what that thing can pull. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, Chris, when are you going to put a uh, truck motor in? Well, personally, I could do it any time. Uh, I mean, there's some nice brass models that that are out there that could benefit from just going truck mount uh-huh. uh, motors. Uh, those are the ones where... You have the side frames, you have the the underframe, but the motor really stinks, and the drive me- the the universals are going like through the tank or something like that. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it's really kind of an older design, and you just want to get out of that and kind of have a more universal, more modern that that'll that little truck uh, powered solution is the way to go. Oh, it so, is neat, I tell you. Um, yeah. Neil, on that, because you mentioned you were doing some of the bigger scales now through Northwest Shortline. Everything I've seen is a B truck. Will there ever be a C truck version of that? Explain C truck. Okay. Your uh, trucks are two axle. That's what we call a B truck. Okay. A C truck, uh, three axle. Or it could be an A1A, but in modeling, typically they're all powered, so it'd be a Three axle version. We, this goes back a long time. I'm Dave Rigmeyer, the owner of Northwest Shortline, and myself have gone back and forth on a three axle drive probably for the last two or three years. It's surprisingly difficult to actually produce a good design. The, um, the reason for that is that third axle sitting in the middle is where we'd like the motor to sit and we want the motor to have enough oomph that it can you know, move a decent-sized loco, especially when we get the three-axle drives. And then we also got to worry about equalization on the axles. So all the naive designs did not meet our criteria for performance and reliability and uh, ease of assembly and adjustment. A lot of things to consider there doesn't mean that we won't bring a three-axle drive to market sometime, but the priority has been to take the two-axle drive up to the S scale and the O scale because there's a big demand there for for that kind of a product. And uh, there are there are um, there are manufacturers out there, or tend to be low-volume manufacturers out there who basically want drive systems um, and the uh, the powered trucks are very, very helpful to those those low-volume manufacturers. So, <clears throat> yes, it would be wonderful to have a three-axle truck. And I would suggest to people they go talk to Northwest Shortline about that. Okay. I I know how difficult it is to produce a really good design for that. We've devoted many, many man weeks and man months to that, I would guess, over the three years. 
So even that central go to your objective there of wanting the the motor to sit down where that third axle is, you know, it doesn't have to be geared. It could be two wheels on stub axles in the frame because uh, people are just looking for, you know, you've got plenty of pulling power uh, per unit. Uh, okay, but I understand your point. Well, we only we only want to power two axles. That 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 much is oh, simple. Oh, very good. Yes. Okay. That that much is simple. And the obvious <clears throat> axle to to leave without gearing is, of course, the center axle. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but we're we're looking at HO, and we want to keep the frame as narrow as possible. And stub axles um, tend to. We need the stub axles to kind of somehow equalize. Okay. And then they've got to be robust enough so that people can't knock them out of alignment. Uh, it's not easy. It's amazing, actually. I, I, I would have thought it was an easy engineering design, but it's not. Okay. I, I learned my lessons there. <laughs> oh, you already been down that path? Okay. <laughs> oh, we've built prototypes. We've tested prototypes. But, you know, Dave Rigby's criteria is a tough one. I mean, he tests the destruction. Okay. If it doesn't, if it doesn't hold up, uh, it never goes to market. All right. Well, I don't have any problem with that philosophy. Not at all. I've certainly bounced enough blue boxes off the concrete before, and they just keep on running. Maybe minus a grab iron here or there, but uh, yeah, pretty Agreed. robust little guys. But especially the blue box, they were great. Yep. All right. So, Jim, you and uh, Chris, you got any other questions for Neil? Um, I mean, and it can be on other things he's doing, too. Now, you're, are you involved with the Magic Carpets, too, or just the standard? I, I was involved with the Magic Carpet, uh, and uh, I'm not involved in any current engineering for a Magic Carpet Drive. But the one that's on the market now, yes, I participated in that. Can you explain what that is? It's a hung axle drive, and the uh, motor is transverse, meaning it's aligned with the axle, and it's directly geared um, through reduction gearing to the to the axle. Uh, it uses a geared motor, which means it comes from the manufacturer with very nice gearing on it. It um, produces amazing torque out of a little motor. So this is larger scale, though? Yes. Yeah, it's O scale, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it essentially is a traction motor. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, like, okay. it's, it's, it's just like the real thing. I mean, it's, it's hanging there on the axle, geared directly to the axle. It's a little champ, and it's very, very, very robust, amazing torque. Mm. I haven't, had a chance, I haven't had a chance to really test mine out. have some issues with how they're mounted in the truck. It happens frequently. Chris? <laughs> <laughs> this, see, this is what I get to look forward to, huh, Jim? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, actually, I think uh, Jim describing what the, the motor is, maybe eventually as technology and uh, experience kind of wear on with that, traction motor like design it could yield three you know the three or four axle trucks in the future maybe just taking a different approach to it 
and scaling down the traction motor to um, HO uh, might be the, the way to go for the situations for three or more axle trucks. Oh, there's an interesting thought. The trick is with that, uh, because somebody tried it, and I forget what it, I forget what his name is, and he was kind of lampooned a little. I mean, he had it working. Thing is, is for instance, the Cato drive or the uh, Athens Genesis drive is a very solid, very robust. Pulls a lot, will pull forever. Herein lies your problem. And until some of the serious guys who buy a lot of diesels, until you can mimic a Cato drive, yeah, uh, they're gonna say, why would I buy? Why would I buy these itty bitty little things that break after ten hours, as opposed to just putting in a Cato drive that works and will run forever until the the engine explodes? Quite literally, they just wear them out. You know, they don't after hours and hours and hours of pulling hundred car trains up, you know, two percent grades on the model railroads. So that's the that's the trick. Once it gets there, that's fine. But you know, getting the motors down that small to have that much torque to pull that long, I think is once you're getting into the smaller scale, maybe S scale you might be able to do it, but once it's it, it's a hurdle to get across. The limitation oh, I- the limitation actually is gearing. Um Already in the uh, the Stanton drive, the HO version, we're we're down to what's called mod point three gearing, and you know pretty soon we have to be watchmakers if we keep going mm-hmm. to smaller and smaller gearing with smaller and smaller motors. So it's not the ability to make the motor; it's the ability to actually make a gear train that meets the incredibly fine tolerances and and is durable enough for the kind of treatment it's going to get. You know, on a model railroad. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, the other thing I think is you can get the motors, but not at prices that a model railroader would want to pay. So that, you you can get anything. You, that you is know, correct. Yeah. You know, it's like you can get. You know, you just may have to pay Rolex prices for your locomotives on each <laughs> on each axle, and I don't. I think uh, you know most model railroaders would go. <laughs> well, here here's another point. Uh, do those uh, do those traction motor style designs have have a worm gear on there to kind of keep the basically to keep the the actual stationary when it's stopped? No, it's spur gearing on the uh, magic carpet, and it's not gonna it's got it's not gonna run backwards because the no. the ratio on the spur gearing is such that there's no way it it's gonna be able to rotate the motor you know at, at motor speed. Uh, just with a bit of uh, friction from the track and some weight, that that no, it's okay. Okay, because that'd be the other thing. If if there was like a, if it was a motor without any gearing, say a you know an axle just going right through the the motor itself, that would create like, problems. Because if if there was if you're on a grade and you're no no electricity going through the motor, it'll start running backwards. So okay, that's good to know. Yeah. Just like on real ones. Just like on the real one, but you know you don't have brakes on these little models. So. Technicality. <laughs> well, once you get the once you get the motors like that, then you have the brakes on the wheels on the HO scale cars. Yeah, and you get the pneumatic stuff. It'll be fun. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe before we uh, drift too far into mechanical engineering here, we should we should um, 
perhaps revisit this Wi-Fi thing a little bit. The um, obviously the beauty of Wi-Fi or the beauty of a few buttons and knobs is in the uh, is in the mind of the user. Uh, it's not up to the manufacturer to to say what you know what the best solution is. Um, that's that's what customers decide for themselves. The Wi-Fi is becoming more more and more approachable because uh, we can go to open sources uh, and pick up the the software we need. And there's there's already Wi-Fi solutions out there. Uh, in fact, I have a customer who's actually running an SCAB system um, from a, from a cell from his um, from his iPad. So, in other words, I don't have to produce the Wi-Fi solution to make it compatible with SCAB because that already exists. Other people have done it. You know, I've I've not cluttered up the website. In fact, I haven't been that active. Uh, updating the website because I've been too busy on other things. But essentially, for the future, we certainly Wi-Fi will certainly open up possibilities. And the other area that is always frustrating, of course, is configuration variables. And as the coders get more and more complicated, managing the configuration variables gets more and more complicated. And the computer, with the appropriate software, is the elegant way to essentially manage configuration variables. And, you know, that is all doable uh, with SCAB. So, again, the migration approach allows other technology developed completely independently to sometime fortuitously, you know, plug and play. And it's amazing what other people discover out there and somehow, you know, figure out how to configure it and bingo. We've got new capability we never anticipated, and that's the beauty, I think, of the Wi-Fi space and, in general, the way radio technology and uh, you know handheld uh, computerized devices is progressing. So, even though I I remarked earlier in this conversation that my personal preference is simply to have a you know a a throttle with a button or a knob. In my case, it's a it's a slide pot. It's a, just a slide. We push up and down. Uh, that's my preference. Uh, but I also consider Wi-Fi part of the overall uh, um, approach to making model railroading um, perhaps more sophisticated, but not necessarily more complicated. In other words, I think we can have more fun, do more clever things, and we with technologies on our side as we do that. So. That's another little bit of philosophy, but I think it clarifies where I stand on Wi-Fi. Well, you know, I also want to add, I think the, the weak link to DCC, uh, there's a couple things. But the one that kind of stands out to me the most is programming. There, there just isn't a real easy approach to kind of convey to someone just starting out. And I keep coming back to someone starting out because that's kind of um, just – my approach in the manufacturing space is we, we want to get as many people kind of enjoying a product as possible. Uh, the programming approach in DCC is very difficult. It kind of has evolved over the past 20 years. It was take a, you, you get a, a DCC cab or a, a DCC system 
and you had a programming output onto it. And you could put any locomotive on there and you could program it. It was pretty simple. But now with sound, you need to also get a booster. And then with sound, you also have to know all the different CV variables in there, which can be quite a bit, especially when you start talking uh, equalizers and all the the newer features that are coming into it. So it's getting pretty sophisticated. Plus, you know, you got to have a physical layer. You got to get physical equipment in order to do it. So if there's any potential to kind of make DCC simpler, make programming extra easy, you know. So I think some of that could be leveraged through through Wi-Fi if that marriage ever happens between DCC and Wi-Fi. Well, it's already happened. Um, JMRI have uh, free software. You can simply download it and install it. And um, there's various people out there who um, essentially produce the uh, the next link in the system, which is to the DCC system or to to uh, uh, essentially a, a, an iPad, uh, iPhone application. They're out there, but they're not very approachable uh, by by folks who are getting started in the hobby. Uh, unless they come from more of a computer-oriented uh, background, uh, in that case, it's it's sort of it seems like it's an obvious thing for them to do based on their experience. But the the more traditional uh, modeler uh, doesn't really know how to go seek out that kind of information, and it's not organized anywhere. So you're right. I mean, it's it appears to the average modeler to be a an arcane, obscure, and frustrating area. You, you know, one of the best-selling products that that I've seen kind of go through Horizon, and it, it's something that, that I think DCC manufacturers should really take note. It's the BLI address change, changer. It does one thing. It changes the address on a DCC locomotive. Very simple. We, we need to kind of think of programming in, in those terms. It's like, okay, how can we simplify this so we don't need to get, uh, you know, say if you have a Digitrax, a Loconet adapter to go from the, you know, the, the command station to the computer and then also get a, a programming booster. You know, let's try to simplify this so you can put the locomotive on and do what you need to do to it and be done with it, you know, and, um, and, and I, I appreciate JMRI. I use it personally, but there are some things on there where, where I'm kind of scratching my head. I'm like, well, how would someone coming new into this really understand this terminology or this approach to like speed curves where you're moving all these little um, slider bars? It, it, it seems pretty obscure compared to any sort of, you know, other yeah. relatable, you know, process out in the I guess in the consumer space, you would say. So BLI with the address changer, I mean, smart. That's really good because they and, – and the market responded to it. So it's something to kind of consider as, yes, the, there is a market for it because people see the programming of locomotives as as a difficult step. Um, we, we see TCS taking their sound decoders and trying to uh, not – trying but actually succeeding uh, treating it like uh how you would call up a bank and check your bank account balance you know if you want to do this press one <laughs> i i think their their approach is different 
unique and in many ways some people find it desirable some people may not you know but having that that just approach of trying to bring it bring the configuration of these decoders into a more simple uh, light is really desirable to the market and i think a lot of people out there are looking for something like that i think we've made a i've, I've done that i think in the uh, scab throttle because you just have to flip it to cv mode and uh, it'll prompt you then uh, um, very simply through changing the local address uh, changing momentum, um, changing, uh, setting the CV29 for compatibility. Uh, so those those CVs are easily edited uh, from the uh, SCAB throttle. I'm prejudiced, but I think it's pretty simple. I think that's great. I think, uh, I think decoders in general would probably benefit from something like that where you could just sort of Access them, put them, put them on like a some sort of power source to power up the decoder, and then just go through and change it as simply as you possibly can via wireless or something else. You know, uh, there there's a lot of add-on equipment that you need to get in order to just do something as simple as programming. So I think that's the the thing that's separating people away from making the jump to. Like, hey, I want to try out DCC, but I need to get this, 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 and this, you know. Um, and some of it doesn't always talk together very easily. So it, it can be kind of a challenge to, to do something that quite we take for granted as simply as programming. I mean, there's a lot of clubs that have gone through that. They had someone set up. So they, they I mean, that's the benefit to joining the club is they have the setup to program a locomotive. It, it's sort of like a radiant light when you walk into this. It's like, oh my gosh, I can actually program my locomotive finally, you know, so. I found that that, that interesting with the SCAB. I, how would you be able to program CVs if it only has a two-digit display? Well, we, this is the sort of the quest for simplicity again. We limit the available loco addresses to 99. And so we can assign any loco address from the throttle just use the throttle. We can set a local address to any number between 1 and 99. That's as far as we go. That's that's it. Now, if if someone wanted to use, well, a better way to probably proceed is to say, well, okay, what what about some of these fancy uh, vendor-specific CVs having to do with, well, sound decoder, um, volumes, and everything else. In that case, uh, it's true. We, we have to go to some supplemental equipment because SCAB throttle is conceived as basically a tool for operating a loco and a tool for setting up uh, the most fundamental CVs um, mm -hmm. for a loco um, uh, and not more than that. So in that sense, it follows the, uh, the, the keep it simple kind of philosophy and, and consequently we can't do everything. But for that, you could have something like a Sprog. But I mean, as you say, it's for it's for running your locomotive, not for programming everything in the world. But you could have a Sprog that's kind of designed. Yeah, you can do. You can. Yeah, and um, I also sell a um, a provide sell whatever a, a radio uh, programming adapter. I call it wrapper. Um, radio programming adapter and um, then we can do everything that anyone else can do including reading cvs by the way so 
and and this is all after the code has been converted to battery power and radio operations. So we we lose nothing uh, in terms of um, <clears throat> what we can do with CV editing just because we've introduced battery power and radio control. We can do the same. We can do the same things by radio. We could do, and we don't need a programming track to do it. And just to clarify, I think that's a step in the right direction. Not having the programming track to yeah, change stuff good. around. I think that is the right direction for it is. And so, so to clarify, with the SCAB, you can run it in addition to a DC sys system. So you could run SCAB local. You can run SCAB locomotives even if you have a current DCC system in, in place, or you can run it without a DCC system entirely. That is correct. Yes, it, the only the only problem, the only limitation would be wireless throttles. A number of vendors' wireless throttles create radio interference for each other, and for SCAB, because they're all closely spaced in a fairly narrow frequency band, which is unfortunate. So, but as far as if we just consider tethered throttles, which of course no one likes very much, but anyway, if we just consider tethered throttles, are uh, SCAB is completely compatible with anything that you would be doing on DCC. Is that a feature of SCAB then to be able to switch between, you know, SCAB and going back to DCC? Should there be a layout that's that you want to run on that still packets through the rails DCC? Yeah, we've had a couple of um, modelers who've gone dual mode. In other words, they can run when they're running at home. They can run. Um, with their S-cab throttle, and then when they go to the club, and they can run on the uh, club's uh, track system. Uh, it's it's rare that anyone asks for that, and it requires a, a little transfer switch to be mounted somewhere on the loco. But the loco is going to get picked up anyway to take it to the club, so it's not too big a deal to flip a switch underneath. So not too many users of that system. They're they're pretty much once you go radio, no, there's. No, no real interest in going back to conventional DCC packets or rail. Then I take it there are very, very few people who are deep into DCC acquire systems from me. Uh, they're too deeply committed to to the investment they have in DCC, and they they're comfortable with DCC. So they're not the the that's not the main market for someone who wants to buy an SCAB system. The people who want to buy SCAB systems are typically people who are, have have a DC operated layout, have a couple of DC operated locos, um, don't want to don't want to learn about DCC, but would like to have sound. And two thirds of all the systems that I sell are sound, so that's the, that's really the the mainstream market for SCAB. Uh, that said, however, um, quite a large number of people. Uh, number of customers actually do run on club layouts as well as at home, but when they go to the club, they actually take their SCAB throttle with them and they operate from their SCAB throttle on a layout where other people are using uh, conventional DCC. And of course, the only problems we've run into, of course, are those of radio interference, which is a serious problem, by the way, and the, the vendors all know about it. It's just not discussed very much. Has there ever, I guess, the has there been sort of a mix between different manufacturers' um, products with this beyond just say like soundtracks and NCE? I've spent quite a bit of time <clears throat> on on TCS. 
uh, train control systems. Um, it's never really caught on with um, the, the people who are coming to me to buy systems. I don't know why that is. They they confuse the market by bringing out too many different models, in my opinion, and they make it very, very hard on a guy like me who's got to open up one of the decoders and try to figure out, do I want to make a direct radio connection here? So I've drifted away from TCS products. I've spent quite a bit of time on uh, ESU lock sound, especially lock sound select, which, of course, is targeted at the U.S. market. It's a very, very complicated decoder, and I can't make it play well with with battery power. Most people would say it's working fine, but when I listen very carefully to the sound, I hear the sound is is kind of wavering a bit. It's not, you know, where you'd expect the diesel engine to be humming along in a perfectly stable way uh, with a with a regular, you know, repetitive, boring, boringly repetitive sound. It's its volumes wavering. It doesn't doesn't sound natural to me. But most modelers don't even notice it. So yeah, I can. I I've worked with TCS and I've worked with um, lock sound decoders. I can make lock sound decoders work with a direct radio connection, but it's not nearly as convenient because the European decoders recognize asymmetric DCC. In other words, the European standard interprets asymmetric DCC, which is one-sided DCC, as breaking signal command to break. Consequently, what comes out of radio is a one-sided signal. In other words, it it's a square wave, but it's gone between 0 and plus 12, not between plus 12 and minus 12, which is a, a symmetric signal. And so lock sound decoders need a symmetric signal coming in, so we've got to essentially turn the radio signal from a one-sided to a two-sided signal. So it's a little bit more complicated, but, but it works. And so the problem is not with radio control. The problem is that I'm fussy me, I guess, finicky me. It's got a bit of a problem with how they handle, <clears throat> with how they perform on battery power. Well, if there's limitations on on decoders, I'm sure the listeners would appreciate knowing these things uh, before getting in, involved in uh, radio control one way or another. So, I mean, some some people might have a pretty sizable investment in ESU. And it's good to know these things before uh, investigating, like, hey, this is something I really want to do. And then understanding that that might work better on killer manufacture is good to know. Yeah. Well, but the issue that he was making was had to do with the battery, right? Did I understand that correctly, Neil? Yes, it's a very, um, <clears throat> it's a very subtle problem, and most people don't notice it. But it, it happens irrespective of whether the radio is radio or not. It happens on battery power. And it's just that the sound volume on certain sounds like a steady diesel engine beat just waver in volume. And I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why that would be. But my theory is that the decoder is getting a bit confused in that it, it thinks it's supposed to be operating on a DC layout rather than on a DCC layout, okay? And in its confusion, it's actually somehow flipping something inside, you know, between a DC mode and a DCC mode, okay, which is what's causing that volume to waver. But but that I can't get confirmation of, of that sort of 
theory out of anyone. So, What were you going to say, Jimmy? I don't remember. What I was going to say is um, there's a big difference between saying this decoder stinks, they're a horrible product, you should not buy them, and they have this limitation. There's a big difference between those two things. So whether they like it or whether they don't, you're not saying they're bad, they're just they don't do well on battery power. That's I mean, would you get mad at Sumer Reports for saying, hey, if you drive the you know, if you drive this all wheel drive car off the road, it doesn't it doesn't do very well. You want a four wheel drive truck for that. They're just telling you how it is. It's not not criticizing the product, just saying this is what it's good for. But I don't I don't see anything wrong with that. Neil was specific that it was to his critical ear and that a lot of people do not notice it. So he's looking from one perspective, whereas you or I may listen to the train going down and hear the 567 just beating along, and we're going, hey, this sounds great. You and I would be the casual listener, and Neil is a more critical listener. So there's a context to it. And the only thing I would say is me now, Paul, which means I'd probably hear it and be like, what the heck is up with that? I'm the, I'm I'm the same guy that said, "Where's the eighth knot?" Uh, yeah, the, like no, we kind of, talked about that before, huh? About, that's right. Yeah, there's the no eighth sound. knot. Where's the eighth knot? Well, yeah, and you, you know, probably buy stereo receivers that have eleven on the volume dial. Absolutely. Too. Get this one; it goes to eleven. A minute ago, the conversation was not so much the limitations of the S cab, but the design criteria and so forth. Chris, you love using uh, JMRI's Decoder Pro. I am frustrated by Decoder Pro. So over the years, I've just learned, as you say, the multitude of CVs, uh, especially when you get to something like ESU, which even has more CVs to do. I'm very comfortable doing that. Uh, You made reference to Broadway's number changer as an on-target product. You're right. I have programmed stuff for people. and No, just show me how to change the number. That's all I want to do. You take care of the rest of it. I don't want to know it. Just make it run good and sound good. So if I were doing the uh, the SCAB setup, and if there were some constraint on what I could program, what I couldn't, that's not a big deal. I have test tracks, and I have an NCE uh you know, the inexpensive uh, power cab there. To me, that's just part of the hobby. So I put it on there and make my changes and put it right back on the track and start controlling it with the uh, the S-cab. I don't see that's a big deal. Wouldn't be to me. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a valid point. I would be so enthralled by the battery and not having to worry about cleaning the track and stumbling through, as you said a while ago, uh, the complexity of certain turnouts and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I would go, hey, this is a win any day. Well, the reason... Not have to worry about The that. reason I was looking into it, you know, in O-scale, many times, the rail that we're using, if you can you can use nickel-silver, which is easy to solder to, or you can get steel, which is about 60% of the price, which yeah. is less easy to solder. You can, but you need a lot more heat to do it. And the other thing is, is I wanted to be able to lay my track, actually cut the rail in 39-foot section, and be connected with plastic or some sort of non-conductive uh, rail jointer, looks, so it looks more realistic. And so battery power was the, the uh, what I would really want to do, though unfortunately I'm in O-scale, and you know, you're know you running into the ginormous motor that really doesn't need to be as big as it is, but it is, so you're stuck with it. So trying to figure out a battery that will actually make the thing go. 
well, can't you just repower? Go to Northwest Shoreline, for instance, and uh, pick up a, a smaller motor that will thrive with the battery-powered uh, system that you know Neil provides. Wouldn't that work too? Possibly. There, there's a bit. I right now I have a locomotive off to a um, a, a, a um, someone who professionally Proto 48s locomotive. Okay. And he's putting in a particular type of motor that is a very, while large, is a very low current draw. Should be fine with that. And the Atlas, the Atlas SW switcher, from what I understand, does not is, is not a hog. It's not like the Weaver. Most of the Weavers and the and the, the MTH and they use these big motors that pull three and five amps. Holy cow! Yeah, the coffee grinder mechanisms. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, nowadays it's not necessarily, you know, particularly if you could put in roller bearings into the unit, and you know, if you have everything rolling fairly well. And, but that changes with large O-scale steam locomotives, and I'm not doing that. So, well, everything's an an accommodation in life, and even way back when Neil and I first spoke about battery power i went good grief this is the way to go i'm just i am a big fan of the direction you know you're headed neil with the battery power system i think it's the modern day repower you know back in the early 80s we talked about putting in can motors and all this stuff but now we're talking batteries so it's we're, we're we're talking different motors and doing the similar things but it's the modern day repower Cool stuff. Yeah, no different than a car nut going and buying a crate motor and dropping it in his classroom. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I tell you, I always wanted to, uh, side note, I had a, uh, oh, I forget what it was. It was a Ford Ford Ranger Ford Ranger pickup. I, yeah, okay. I always wanted to put a 5.0 in there. 5.0 double overhead cam, you can get one for about $8,000. Oh, yeah, yeah you could. At the time, it, what are they it doing? was theoretically possible to, to do it. You know, but, <laughs> never, never, theoretically possible. I, I, I knew of people who had put a 5.0 V8 in a Ford Ranger. But neither the money nor the time nor the inclination was one of them. Well, you know, we could dress up D-cell batteries as uh, pipe loads, put them on a flat car, and use that to power the uh, locomotives run up through uh, Neil's power management system in the desk cab. That'd work. No, no it would okay. work as a battery. If, you know, theoretically it would work as a battery power. What I'm saying, it won't work at work as a pipe load. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to hide the uh, rail vac. Uh, low uh-huh. on yeah. Yeah. Put a wrapper on it so it looked like pipe. No, unfortunately <laughs> it's the whole see-through part of the pipe that, that would you be losing. <laughs> I, I have I have one I have one customer out there who's actually adopted a, a novel approach, which is that he's created the concept of what he calls his power car, and they are independent of the loco, so he can basically drop a power car behind the loco and plug it in, and he's good to go. So he has the he has the decoder and the radio receiver sitting in the tender of his logo because he's essentially modeling old-style steam. And uh, then he's got the trailing power car disguised as a whatever. He's got a, he's, he's, he's got a number of these, okay, so he can, he can decide at a moment's notice, okay, well, I'll grab, I'll grab a fully charged power car and hook it up to my whatever loco, and I'm good to go. Um, rather interesting idea. And um, he's the first guy that's ever done that. But it, 
it, it's um, it's another variation on you know using a pipe load for to hide um, a battery, oh. I guess. The ideal thing is, particularly in O scale, but it's it's possible in lower and smaller scales with the right connectors, is just to use a dummy locomotive with a battery in it and MU them. Literally have to MU them, and say, well, that that takes too long. Well, it it it's like you know if you've ever actually MU'd a locomotive, which I have, uh, <laughs> it takes some time. There's a big old stinking cable you got to plug in, and a bunch of hoses you got to hook up, and then you got to do tests, you got to do this, you got to do that, and it doesn't always work. Sometimes you got to move the cable around. These things happen. It is not a oh I have the thing running in 35 seconds type of procedure. So you know having it, particularly in O scale where you could put a ginormous battery in the in the second unit. Um, because I find that a lot is, you know, people running around with a single unit, which I, I just, to, to me, never looks right. But, you know, trying to speed match the two locomotives, I can understand that's an aggravation. But instead of having to do that, if you just have one that pulls well and one that's a battery that you just plug in with an MU cable, that's literally you have to MU it, then that would solve that problem. Well, but, you know, it's like on, I only have four steam locomotives, but they're big. And like on Chris's uh, big boy there, it got plugged in once. And I just used the uh, A-line, you know, the protopower box where you can set them vertically. And they just never get uncoupled. So you could do the same thing with your B unit with the battery in it that's hardwired to your A unit. And you just lift them up and you set them down in that box and they never come apart. Well, and while you could do that, the nice thing about having a... They're O-scale locomotives, which means they're not small, uh, that what I'm talking about. Okay, just use a bigger box. Uh-huh, which means they're all... How much do they weigh? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, like... Are they six, heavy? Seven pounds. A piece? Yeah. Whoa, gee whiz. Anyway, so, but the point is, is, is since an O-scale locomotive is also going to use more juice, it, would, it wouldn't be a bad thing to have two, and it's not unusual to have a unit fail and then say, all right, we've got to get a different one. So you just MU to a different unit. So if you had two yet two locomotives that were just batteries and one power, yeah, there we go. There we had, go. You know, a couple of locomotives that were always dogs and always breaking down, which means you should actually should have the side doors open and, and oil leaking down the side. Uh -huh. It's like this thing. Ah, it's uh, yeah, just. But you know, TCS and other people do make those real thin wired two conductor uh, connectors. So. Yep, I know. Hooking up the power should be easy. I've, I've actually. I've done essentially that in a end scale. Well, I haven't finished the project yet, but putting a keep alive in an end in a second end scale unit and then plugging it into the uh, through through those itty bitty connectors. It's only slightly larger. The smallest connector they have is only slightly larger than than the end scale uh, MU cable okay. hole. So it's only slightly larger than that that um, casting. So. I, I just drilled it out and put in the connector and then, you know, have the, the second locomotive have a keep alive in it and just plug it in. That was what the theory, and uh, I haven't finished that project. That's okay. Doable See, we're just talking outside the box here, and it's nothing more than people can do with the battery power system out of uh, Neil's company. Hook it up. I like it. Very doable. So as I rebuild the Empire here in the uh, the new house, I've opened myself up to thinking about battery power. 
Well, since you're at it. You can Are you going to get like a Tesla battery backup? Yeah, I'm going to go out and buy a Tesla. Yes, so that I can hook it up. <laughs> Not a Tesla car. They have like these battery backups for it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or just a couple old car batteries, you know, wired in series because they have storms down here, so I'm told. Well, shh. Yeah, not not like where you used to be. That's probably. right. They're all right. Anything else? I can't think of anything off. I think it's been a good discussion. End. We've covered a lot of things. I wanted to make sure that we gave Neil ample time to talk because I, I am really a fan of what he's doing. So that's good. Chris, you got the day off, but yeah, Neil's a working guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Back back to the next generation battery power yes, supply, yeah. right? Yeah, let's get that yeah, yeah. working real, real quick. <laughs> in the three wheel truck. The the, uh, the sad the sad the sad thing about the battery power supply is, the favorite remark is, "Can you make it smaller?" And the, the, the thing, the funny thing. You know, I never thing, thought of that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about power is, power is power. And it takes space, and the storage capacity of a lithium-ion battery or a lithium polymer battery is roughly proportional to the to the volume. So you can't get more storage capacity without getting more volume. And it doesn't matter what you do; that's the state of the technology. <clears throat> the components, of course, um, every time you start pushing a couple of amps through a component, guess what? It gets bigger. So where we'll get the battery we'll get the battery power supply a little bit smaller but not not dramatically slow uh, smaller so it's uh for the end scalers uh where we've got a long way to go uh, unless they want to start you know putting batteries in box cars is there a heat heat concern with the batteries yeah the yeah the thermal design uh, is okay. is quite important uh, it's not so much the battery, but the thermal design of the uh, battery power supply is critical because we've got to deal with overload conditions, and under a lo overload condition, we've got to keep the temperature from rising. The The components themselves um, can operate at temperatures that actually melt the plastic, so we could get a lot more capacity in a smaller space if we're willing to let the temperature go up to 100 degrees or more. Um, but but plastic logos don't like that, so it's got to be a very conservative thermal design, um, and that's what I do. Liquid molten brass and scale cars, the next battery container. Bra brass is better, uh, so long as it doesn't touch anything electrical. But Chris's right. track is going to be Delrin or some of the other plastic. That way we'd avoid the short opportunity. I've got I've got a, a guy out there floated the idea of I'm gonna do I'm I'm actually going to do this um uh 3D uh printed uh oh, okay. plastic track. All right. I don't know where he thinks he's gonna get the money to to buy, you know, several hundred feet of carefully um manufactured uh three D printed plastic track. But anyway, it's it falls in the wild and crazy idea department. Ah, uh, well, you know. It's only crazy when it's first thrown out there. And then all of a sudden somebody embraces it, and next thing you know, it's doable. Well, it will certainly give new meaning yes, to battery will. power. Well, it's it's doable now. It's just stupidly expensive. 
You got it. You know, and for, for a machine that will actually 3D print rail at the appropriate at the appropriate resolution is probably in the order of half a million dollars. Probably. And then God help you for the amount of money it's gonna cost for each section of the track. Wow. Well, it's also the, also the printing time. Um, mm-hmm. It takes hours and hours to print a, uh, a relatively large um, 3D printed whatever. I had a friend of mine do a, um, a boxcar in an old to get the resolution. It took 11 hours to do. Is that the, uh, like the boxcar that you want Atherin to do? Yeah, that what they want. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris, I had to ask the question. We're yeah, going to bring up that dang boxcar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Next, they, next time you talk to Atherin, tell them that they make the plastic shells of their narrow hooded locos okay. a little too thick. I'd like 18 millimeters of clearance inside. Okay. And other, manufa- other manufacturers are fine. Cato, for example, um, no problem. Uh, the, and the old blue boxes were okay, um, but the Spectrum series, a um, little too narrow on the inside. Come it's all to do with the thickness of the plastic, I yeah, think. Yeah, the wall thickness. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, Chris is the man to make that happen. Uh. Oh, and, and another another interesting thing, too, but since we're, we're off here on a little bit of a, uh, <laughs> a rabbit trail, uh, <clears throat> the, the plastic that's used on the Spectrum series is translucent. Soundtrack obligingly puts a very bright LED light, <clears throat> and it happens to be yes. red. On their decoder, it shines right through the plastic. Yes, it can. <laughs> yes, it does. And when you have the headlights on, there's two yep. of them shining through because there's a second LED for the light. Yeah, I know. I think that depends on direction, but I'm not sure. Any, anyway, it's it's kind of, uh, I finish up having to put black tape over, of course, the, the decoder to, to, to hide that. But, uh, you know, little, little, little things you never notice till you actually complete That's the model right. and look at it. Oh, oh, darn, you know, I've got to rip it all out That's again. Right, and, uh, open, right. open fans through the top also show the red light. If it doesn't come through the plastic, mm-hmm. it comes yeah. through the open fan. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Little, uh, that's why we all have uh, black electrical tape, so we can put little dabs of it over the LED pilots. Now, now the, the, uh, the Econami has a nice blue LED, okay? And I discovered completely by accident that I, I mounted a decoder such that the nice blue light reflected through the windows of the driver's cab. And it's perfect because in low lighting, you get this nice bluish glow, which, of course, is the reflection of all the instruments oh, in the local. So it works out. Yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. And, 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 and even more, the customer said, I want to know when the battery's on. I, oh. I need a light. I said, you don't need a separate light. Just look in there, and if the little blue light is on and the instruments are reflecting blue light, guess what? It's on. Oh, okay. That's just a little bit of luck. That's serendipity. That's, uh, that wasn't planned. That's right, it just nothing happened. wrong with serendipity. No, it's not. And no. Luck is another good thing, too. I think we've had a good session, gentlemen. I appreciate your time, Neil. <clears throat> well, you're welcome, and uh, it's always fun to chat about oh, these yeah, things. Yeah. And... All right. So, Neil, thank you very much. Okay, well, everyone take care and um, goodbye.